Thank you. You may be seated. Well, I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles out this evening and open with me to the Gospel of John. We'll be looking at the beginning in John chapter 14. John chapter 14 this evening as we start a new series. We have been on Sunday evenings focused on theology. And specifically, we've been looking, I trust, I hope you found it out to be, while deep, practical as well. The practicality of theology. And you may ask, what is theology? As we turn to this passage in John 14, theology is basically the study of the Bible, the entire Bible, on one specific subject. So if you were to study the entire Bible and just look at the topic of sin in the Bible, you would call that harmar theology. It's a fun word to say, but that's what that would mean. If you were to do an entire study of the Bible on just the end times and prophecy, what would we call that? Anybody know? Eschatology. That's right. And if you do a study of the Bible on the Holy Spirit, and that's what you see on the screen behind me, that is the study of the, word, of the, of the Bible on pneumatology. And that's exactly what we're going to be seeking to do this evening. And here's what we're asking. What does the Bible teach about the Holy Spirit? And as you answer that question, you are doing a study of pneumatology. Now, before we get into the study, everyone is a theologian. Everyone believes an answer to this question that's on the screen. Ultimately, we have to ask if we are good or bad theologians. That's the, problem, the question. Not, are you a theologian, but are you a good or bad theologian? Do you have a good grasp on what the Bible says? Do you have a balanced grasp on what the Bible says? Whether we understand the Bible's answered this question, and whether we understand it in a biblical proportion, will we'll, we'll determine whether or not we're good or bad theologians. And today, we are answering the question about the, the Holy Spirit, but let me first observe this truth about the Holy Spirit. How people handle their theology concerning the Holy Spirit is extremely divisive. Today, we're going to be looking at pneumatology 101, is what I called it. We're just going to do a broad overview of that. But how people answer the subject of pneumatology or the Holy Spirit is a divisive topic. Everyone has to believe something about this. You can't just say, I don't really care, because the Bible does clearly care about the Holy Spirit. And God has revealed so much about the Spirit in the Scripture, but this is a divisive subject. If you are to ask someone on the streets, are you a follower of Jesus? To people, statistics indicate that those people that answer, are you a follower of Jesus, statistics indicate that somewhere around 2.2 billion people on the planet today say that they are a follower of Jesus. In other words, broadly speaking, they would say they're a Christian, 2.2 billion people. Now, depending on who is doing those statistics, one count would say 300 million of those 2.2 billion are evangelical. Somewhere around one out of seven or one out of ten people who say they are a Christian are actually evangelical. Now, an evangelical would be someone who says, I believe the Bible is the only ultimate authority, and it teaches that me that I must exercise personal faith in Jesus alone in order to be rescued from my sin. Now, by that definition, we would consider ourselves to be an evangelical church, right? Now, let me be clear. I understand we just came through an election cycle, 
So when I'm saying evangelical Christian, I'm not defining it however whatever news media you may be watching defines it. I'm defining it strictly in the sense of those who believe the Bible to be their sole authority for faith and practice that leads them to faith alone through Christ alone by grace alone. That's an evangelical. And whatever, depending on the statistics, somewhere say that they, those evangelicals are about 300 million of the 2.2 billion who say they are Christians. But if you go to those same 2.2 billion people that say they are a Christian, and you ask this question, do you believe that the Spirit still leads people to speak in tongues and still gives people the gifts of miracles and healings? That's the question we're going to ask them. Now, if you go to Operation World, one of the major statistical analysis groups, that question is by definition charismatic. So are you a charismatic is another way to ask that question. Because charismatics believe that speaking in tongues, the gifts, miracles, and the gifts of healing are normal today. We could expect that to still happen today. How many Christians of that 2.2 billion would consider themselves to be charismatic? And the answer is 600 million. That's twice as many Christians who are charismatic as there are Christians who are evangelical. Now that's pretty sobering even to just look at. And, and next week I hope to look at a history of charismaticism, where, where that came from, to tell you just why that number is so high. And I do believe there's a reason for that, which I think will startle you. But what people believe about the Spirit and how he, he works today is a major issue in Christianity today. It's shocking, frankly, that more professing believers believe in the reality of a charismatic experience than believe in salvation by faith alone in Jesus alone. That's rather shocking. Now, what I've just described is a major dividing line in Christianity. And because it's such a dividing line, you might think I'm prepared to have a sword fight with the enemy and say, let's fight for why we're right and you're wrong. But that's not what I'm going to do at all. After talking about divisive this is, let me at least introduce this by saying how practical this is, because it is practical. Are you convinced this evening that the Holy Spirit lives in you? How would you know that the Holy Spirit is indwelling you? How would you know that? Do you know what it means to be filled with the Spirit? Do you know what it means to walk in the Spirit? Do you know what it means to be led by the Spirit? Do you know what it means to have the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Do you know how to use the sword of the Spirit? That's pretty practical questions, is it not? You see, there aren't just doctrinal issues. Doctrinal issues are never just doctrinal. Doctrinal issues are always very practical. Even today they are practical. So I'm going to try to give you an overview of what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to try to do, in the same message, the impossible. I'm going to try to give you the definition of the Holy Spirit, and also why it is so practical. And to begin, I'm going to begin by reading with you in John chapter 14. And we're going to read three passages in John before we begin this message. We'll begin in John chapter 14. Look with me in your Bibles at John 14, beginning in verse 16. It says this, and I will pray, Jesus is speaking here, and I will pray that the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he might abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, 
whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth in you and shall be in you. That's John 14, verses 16 and 17. Stay in the Gospel of John and come with me to John 15. John 15, look at verse 26 and 27 of John 15. Again, Jesus is still speaking, and he says, But when the Comforter is come, and notice in my Bible that letter, that word Comforter, the, the first letter is capitalized. It is speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of the truth, there he clarifies, if you were confused, what the Comforter was, he tells you, even the Spirit of the truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me, and you shall bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. John 15, verses 26 and 27. Stay in the Gospel of John. Come with me to John 16. John 16, picking up our reading in verse 6. Again, Jesus is still talking in John 16, when he says this in John 16, verse 6. But because I have said these things unto you, Sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because of the prince of this world is judged, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you these things to come. He shall glorify me, that's Jesus talking, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. That passage, that final passage, certainly fleshes out even further what Jesus has talked about in the previous two chapters. So here's what we're going to do. Let's start with this question, and I wish my slides had clicked on it, so it's going to go show you all my points at the beginning. I'm realizing that now, so stay with me as we go through it. Here's the first question. Who is the Holy Spirit? We have just read three crucial passages and some of the most crucial teachings Jesus will ever give. And these verses focus on the Spirit, and we need to extract five major foundational truths about the Spirit from these passages. The first of one is already on the screen. The Spirit is a person. You might say, duh, right? He's a person. But do you know that many people in the world, and especially cults, believe that the Spirit is not a person, but a force or a presence? They believe the Spirit is an it. But the Scripture speaks of the Spirit as a he. And what we just read about the Spirit, the Bible provides many ways, and they're all on the screen. So stay with me one by one. Number one, the pronouns used in Scripture confirm he is a person. Every pronoun used in reference to the Spirit is a he, not an it. The word for spirit in Greek, you might already have been able to guess. If it's called pneumatology, you could probably guess what the word for the spirit is in Greek. It is pneuma. You got it, right? That's why you got it. You might say, where did they come up with that word? There it is, right? It's not pneuma, although that's what I would like to say. Now, pneuma 
is a neuter word and would actually naturally take neuter pronouns if it was just used as pneuma. But God uses the spirit, pneuma, and in those cases, masculine pronouns are attached to it. Why would he do that? Why go about the extra caution of adding masculine pronouns to the spirit in the text? Because he is a person. The pronouns used. And the commands given in Scripture confirm he is a person as well. The Great Commission teaches us to baptize in his name. We'll see that in Matthew 18, verse 19. Baptize in name of the Holy Spirit. We are not to grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4 tells us in verse 30. The Spirit can be sinned against, Isaiah 63, verse 10 tells us. It can be lied to, he can be lied to, I should say, in Acts 5, verse 3. We are to obey him, the Holy Spirit, Acts 10, verses 19 to 21. We are to honor him in Psalm 51, verse 1, and on and on, the commands given. And the works he does, according to Scripture, confirm he is a person as well. He was personally involved in creation. Remember this in Genesis? The Spirit moved upon the face of the waters. He was personally involved in creation. He empowers God's people in Zechariah 4, verse 6. He guides God's people in Romans 8, verse 14. He comforts God's people in John 14, verse 26. He convicts God's people in John 16, verse 8. He teaches God's people in John 16, verse 13. He restrains sin in Isaiah 59, verse 19. He gives commands in Acts 8, verse 29. He is doing personal works because he is a person. And the attributes he has, according to Scripture, confirm he is a person. The Holy Spirit has life, according to Romans 8, verse 2. The Holy Spirit has a will, according to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. The Holy Spirit is omniscient, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. He is eternal, according to Hebrews 9, verse 1. He is omnipresent, according to Psalm 139, verse 17. Likewise, the Holy Spirit is referred to as God. Not as a God, but as God. Only a being who is equal to God and possesses the same being and personhood as God can be defined as God. So what I say in this first point might be a duh, but it's also greatly debated, especially amongst cults. And let me say again, he is a he. He is a person. And so we must relate to him personally. And as such, he is to be revered as God and serves in perfect unity with the Father and the Son, who are so often easily marked as people, but the Holy Spirit is marked often as a force. He is a person. And secondly, he proceeds from the Father. And for this point, I got it directly from our reading. Look at John 15. Remember this in verse 26? When the Helper comes, John 15, verse 26, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, and there it is, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Now this statement, in full view of 2,000 years of history, can hardly be explained in one message. So much about the truth about God and the Spirit is a mystery that we are yet to be revealed. Here's what I know this statement means. As long as the Father has existed, the Spirit has existed. Whenever the Father plans to do something, God the Spirit wants to serve him and be the one who actually carries it out and fulfills the plan. 
Three times in John, we are told that the Father will send the Spirit at the request of Jesus. In addition to John 15, verse 26, we read John 16, verse 27, when it said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Remember that in John 16? We read it in John 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you the Helper. In other words, the Holy Spirit comes from the Father as the personal servant of God the Son. That's how it's always been. Now, if you're thinking at this point, wow, you're really smart to tell us this deep theology. Let me just be really clear. This is beyond me. I'm kind of putting guardrails on how we are talking right now. Because you might be asking, how does this work? And how does that work? And I will answer you and say, I don't know. There are things I don't know. But because I don't know doesn't mean that I'm confused. Because there are things that I do know. Here's what I do know. The Father plans, the Son executes, and the Spirit reveals. We can see this in creation, for example. The Father planned creation. The Son executes creation. The Spirit reveals creation. We see this in salvation. God, their Father, plans salvation from all eternity. He does so through the work of the Son, providing us salvation, and the Spirit then comes and applies the work of Jesus to individual lives. So the first verse of the song we just sung, on For the Sake of His Name, where the Spirit leads people, that is biblical truth. That's what the Spirit is doing. It is the Spirit who is saving you, you could say, but the Spirit is working out the Father's plan that can only happen through the work of the Son. That's what the Spirit is doing. The Spirit proceeds from the Father. And thirdly, the Spirit not only proceeds from the Father and is a person, as my clicker dies on me, uh, it is dead. There you go. The Spirit promotes the Son. This is very, very important. Notice again what we read in John 15. John says, this is John 15, verse 26, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So the Spirit is going to come in the next generations and promote Jesus. He has come to bear witness about Jesus. Go to John 16 again, verse 8. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they believe not. Basically, the Spirit is going to come and convict because they don't believe in Jesus. He even says of righteousness because I'm not here to tell you anything anymore. I'm not presently there. But perhaps John 16, verse 14 says it most clearly. In John 16, verse 14. He, speaking of the Spirit, will glorify me, Jesus is talking, talking about himself, for he will take what is in mind and declare it to you. So the Spirit is going to bring back into mind everything we know about Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. D.A. Carson puts it this way. Nothing brings more glory to our exalted Lord Jesus than for his followers to become steeped in all truth concerning him. Glory comes to Jesus as the truths of the gospel are established in the lives of men. If the Holy Spirit is working in your life, his chief activity, his only activity, is revealing, promoting Jesus to you exalting Christ, loving Christ, telling others about Christ, growing in Christ, teaching you about Christ. That's what the Spirit does. 
And the Spirit, I could say, permeates Jesus' followers. You're in John 16. Look at verse 13. When the Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now, this is a specific promise that this original generation of disciples would rightly remember and record who Jesus was, what Jesus had done, what Jesus had taught, and what Jesus was going to do. In other words, John 16, verse 13 is a promise that is fulfilled in one specific volume. Ready for it? When was John 16, verse 13? When the Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. Truth about me. Where do we read truth about Jesus? The Bible is correct, but there's a yet fulfillment when he gives this to his disciples. There's a portion of the Bible that has not yet been recorded that these men hearing this from Jesus, many of them will be instrumental in making. The New Testament. The fulfillment of this truth is the New Testament. It's why Matthew wrote the quintessential discipleship manual in world history. The Spirit guided Matthew to write that. It's why Peter wrote the quintessential letter on how Christians suffer. The Spirit of God guided him to write that. It's why John, the great revelator, wrote the record of Revelation. And note what John 16, verse 13 says at the end. The Spirit, he, will declare to you the things to come. So the Revelation book is also a fulfillment of this. For we know what the other writers of the New Testament said about the writers of the Old Testament. In fact, Peter would say this in his letter, in 2 Peter 1, verse 21, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, even the Old Testament itself. He's talking about the Old Testament. He says, But the holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So even there, you're right. So that they would not only have the words of Isaiah, Moses, or David... But Jesus is saying, I am leaving, so you not only have the words of Isaiah, Moses, and David, and others in the Old Testament, but one day you will have the words of John, and Matthew, and Mark, and Peter. That's why I'm leaving. So the Spirit would do this. And so Jesus, really, the, the, the point should say, the Spirit produced the Scriptures. And it says Jesus, the Spirit permeates Jesus' followers. We'll get to that one in a moment. Letter D should say, the Spirit produced the Spirit or the scriptures. So Jesus promised the Spirit would remind his followers of his word so that his followers would for all time be able to read God's words. God's words were produced by the Spirit to talk about the Son. That's the triunity at work, by the way, there in the scriptures. Now we come to the permeation of the believers. Finally, we know John 14, verse 17. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Now this is significant. To this point in history, the Spirit has always been around. But he has been with people. Many people have asked, well, why, why did Saul, because that's a famous one, why did the Spirit leave Saul? Because the Spirit was with Saul, and he was with others as well in the Old Testament times. But until this point, the Spirit had not been in people, and there is a difference. And that is what, that, that is what we should look, look like inside every believer. He would inhabit our bodies. This is what 1 Corinthians says. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, this is talking to the New Testament believer, which is in you, 
which you have of God, and you are not your own. In other words, there is a major difference between how the Spirit worked in the Old Testament up until the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and how the Spirit would work when Jesus was glorified and ascended. There's a major difference. You might say, why did Jesus repeat in three chapters, three different times, I'm leaving, the Spirit's coming? Why is he doing that? He's alerting them to something. Things are about to change. I need to leave so things will change. John 7, verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to recede, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's John 7, verse 39. To put it bluntly, the Spirit is now given to God's people in a way that he has never before been given. He permanently lives inside the individual disciples' hearts. So to outline again, the Spirit is a person. The Spirit proceeds from the Father. The Spirit promotes the Son, not on the screen. The Spirit produced the Scriptures. And the Spirit permeates Jesus' followers. As the songwriter says, you ask me how I know he lives? Do you know the, the answer? He lives within my heart. This is the new era of the Spirit. Now, we have seen the Spirit as a person. He is God. Always teams with him. He serves the Father and the Son. He glorifies Jesus. He produced the truthful record about Jesus, and he lives in every follower of Jesus. But what does the Bible teach about the Holy Spirit? Those foundational truths in themselves are immensely practical, but how do we really get down to the brass tacks? How do we get down to what that all means? Kevin DeYoung, who pastors now in North Carolina, tells tells humorously how many Christians have answered that question. Here's what he says in his book. The Spirit told me to do this, or the Spirit revealed to me to do that. DeYoung writes this way. Quote, My roommate in college went on a date with a very sweet girl. She was a good Christian. She didn't mean to have bad theology, but after their first date, instead of telling my roommate I'm not interested or I don't like you or quit stalking me, she went all spiritual on him. She said, I've been praying a lot about you, and the Holy Spirit told me no. (laughs) Poor guy. He got rejected not only by the sweet girl, but also by the Holy Spirit. (laughs) The third person of the Trinity took a break from pointing people to Jesus to tell this girl not to date my roommate. I didn't even know that was in the Spirit's job description. That was the end quote. That is often the case in well-meaning Christian high schoolers and college students. Don't blame it on God. Let's figure out what the Spirit's job description is, because that's bad theology. And it's shocking how many bad theology moments we see, even with popular preachers, for example. Now, that might be a humorous illustration. Not all that humorous is to talk about TV preachers who say, it is God's will for you to be rich. The Spirit has said, it is God's will for you to have your best life now. That's not what the Spirit is at work doing. That's not what the Spirit is doing. You say, I wouldn't do that. But it's it's common in my background as pastor for people to say something more like this. Listen to the Spirit's still, small voice in your heart. And they turn the Spirit mystical. Let me help you out. If you're hearing voices in your head, (laughs) go find help, right? (laughs) So why do we need the Holy Spirit? There has to be practicality, and I'll put them all on the screen, at least six of them, and we'll work through them. Because I can't leave us here. We have to answer practically. 
And these will become the outline for our sermons moving forward. So don't worry if we're breezing through, we'll come back to them one at a time. What does the Spirit actually do? What does it actually feel like, we could say, to have the Spirit promote Jesus in your life? The whole scripture, but particularly the New Testament, gives detailed answers to that. Number one, the Spirit's illuminating work. We could, call it, we could say he turns the light on in people's hearts about Jesus. This is seen in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, a passage we'll look at during this series, where we read the Spirit removes the natural blindfold that covers unbelievers' hearts. There's the Spirit's regenerating work. The Spirit gives life to dead sinners who hear the good news of the gospel. John 3 speaks of this new birth. And it says, You do not know where the wind comes or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, there's a miraculous new life that takes place when someone comes to Christ. He gives new life to dead sinners, and that's entirely God's work. And then there's the Spirit's sealing work. The Spirit guarantees believers' inheritance in the kingdom. The Holy Spirit is God's mark of ownership on us. He is the sign that God will protect us as his own until the day we come to inherit his kingdom. You can't lose your salvation. Where do we come up with that kind of a doctrine? Right here in pneumatology, in very real senses. The Spirit's baptizing work. The Spirit immerses believers into Jesus' work for them. Scripture teaches that at the moment a sinner commits his life to Jesus, the Spirit immediately immerses that individual into everything Jesus has done for him. Your sins, is what I'm saying, your sins, past, present, and future, got nailed to the cross. You should praise the Lord for that. Who did that? The Spirit did that. The Spirit's filling work. The Spirit seeks to control the believer's life with Jesus' authority. Ephesians 5.18 is where Paul contrasts being filled with the Spirit with being under the controlling influence of alcohol. And Paul says believers should never be under the control of alcohol because they should always be under the control of the Spirit. Remember that passage? You need to soak yourself in Scripture, is what he's saying, and yield yourself to its authority and thus be controlled by the Spirit. It is possible for even believers to not be filled. That's what he's talking about in that passage, filling of the Spirit. There's the Spirit's killing work. The Spirit leads believers to kill sin in their lives. This, of course, is not physical, like you need to kill yourself, but it's referring to spiritual warfare. How are you going to kill selfishness, bitterness, jealousy, worry, as a fallen individual in a sin-corrupted world? This is called, by many theologians, but I call it killing work because I wanted them all to rhyme, it is called normally the mortification by the Spirit. Romans 8, verses 13 and 14, Paul teaches that every Christian has the Spirit, and the Spirit is leading every Christian to put to death the sin nature inside him. And this is a lifelong, day-by-day warfare, the Spirit's killing work. Let me give you several more. There's the Spirit's producing work. The Spirit produces Christ-likeness in believers' character. This is most commonly called the fruit of the Spirit. We see that listed in Galatians 5. As you yield yourself to the Spirit, who is compelling you to submit to Jesus, the Spirit is going to produce in you the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? And you can't list all of them because it's singular. 
So what is it? Well, we'll answer that, so come back later. The, the Spirit's witnessing work, moving forward, verse 8, the Spirit's witnessing work. The Spirit comforts suffering believers with Jesus-like confidence. You could also call this, as some theologians call this, the testifying work of the Spirit. He is telling you that you are God's child. Paul teaches in Romans 8 again that God gives to every Christian the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we may cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit gives us an innate, childlike spirit that we may turn in prayer to God as a loving Father who cares for us. Aren't you thankful for that work in your life during trial? There's the Spirit's gifting work. The Spirit gives Christian service abilities to build Jesus' church. This is talked about in three passages. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and one more actually, I'll add 1 Peter 4. Rather than explaining all those passages, let me just talk about how this works in our congregation. Some have musical abilities that encourage us to praise Jesus in song. Some have service abilities to serve Jesus and his church. Some have administrative abilities. They organize things and fellowships that keep opportunities for service available for even more. Some actually, I believe, have decorating abilities. We'll we'll see that on display both now and later when preparing for Christmas. You say, are you saying that the, the gifting of the Spirit is more even than the lists we have in Scripture? And the answer to that is, yes, I am saying that. But we'll look at that as well in this series. There's the Spirit's encouraging work. The Spirit gives Christians courage to tell others about Jesus. This is most often called the boldness of the Spirit. When persecution hit the church in Luke, rather hits the church, Luke describes in Acts 4, the church gathered to pray in Acts 4. And when they prayed, we read this in Acts 4, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happened? They continued to speak the gospel with boldness. The Spirit gives this encouraging, bold, so that the Spirit glorifies Jesus by emboldening Christians to courageously tell others about him. And finally, the Spirit's inflaming work. The Spirit leads the church to crave and long for and even groan for Jesus' return. I might call this, as some do, the bellows of the Spirit. You know those bellows that are used, they sit next to the fireplace when the coals get low, and you take out that bellows and you blow on the coals to get the flame back up. This is the bellows of the Spirit. I praise the Lord. Some have asked, why bring in guest speakers? I view the work of a guest speaker, like we'll have in January, like we've had with Aaron Coffey and others, I view their work as being like those those bellows next to a fireplace. They're not saying anything new but they're blowing on those coals that for some of us, just through matter of time, it just becomes monotonous. You've heard the same preacher, me, all of these times. You need a new voice saying the same thing to just blow on you a little bit so you can get inflamed again. That's why we bring in guest speakers, practically. On the very last page of the Bible, if you want to turn there, John says this in Revelation 22. Revelation 22, verse 16, it says this. I, Jesus, Revelation 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. For I am, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Now that is a reference to the fact that Jesus is God's appointed king who will rule over all the governors of the earth. 
And there is a response to this that this testifier will make happen. Verse 17 of Revelation 22. The spirit and the bride say, now first of all, we go any further, we get to be part of that bride. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let all who hear say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price come. And John ends the book of Revelation this way in verse 17. Come, Lord Jesus. The Spirit is energizing the church to long for the return of King Jesus. Do you see how the Spirit in every facet of his work seeks to glorify Jesus in people's lives? Theologian Graham Cole in his very helpful book on the Holy Spirit called He Who Gives Life, the Doctrine of the Holy Spirit, emphasizes that the magnificence of the Holy Spirit is the self-effacing nature of the Spirit. He states it very illustratively like this. You can't go to the theater, or rather you don't go to the theater, to stare up at the spotlights. You go to watch the performance that the spotlight illuminates. And he likens the work of the Holy Spirit to the spotlight that shines all our attention on Jesus. And Cole says, for this reason, believers are rightly called Christians, not Numians. (laughs) We are called to follow Christ But who shines the spotlight on Christ? The Spirit. So believer, how would you know that the Spirit is at work in you? And answer is, by what you think of Jesus. Is the direction of your life over a long duration of time, not just over what you did last week, moving towards a love for Jesus? Are you longing for Jesus? Are you submitting to Jesus' authority? Are you moving in deeper hatred of your sin because it makes you unlike Jesus? Is the enduring direction of your life moving more and more towards childlike prayer and bold evangelism? Is the enduring direction of your life moving towards unselfish service for Jesus' church that he bought with his own blood? Are you groaning to be more like Jesus? Are you groaning to see Jesus? Some of you here today say, I know all these things, but it's not making a difference. Like, I know all the Bible. I've read it before, but it's almost like the Bible and me are, are just distant acquaintances. Like, I know it, I've read it, I grew up there, but it's not real to me. And then I hear testimonies, maybe you heard them this week during Thanksgiving week, of people that are just enamored with Jesus, and you think, that's not me, I wish that was me. And to that I would answer, you need the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who is actually going to make the difference in your life. To apply it very differently, and here's where I'll end. Some of you here might say, I've been praying for healing. Or I have prayed for the longest time that I would know that the Spirit has worked in me by the evidence of speaking in tongues. Or I want the miraculous to be evident in my life. And I would answer this way. Why do you want that? Is it because you want to be more like Jesus? 
if what's driving you is not Christ-likeness, then this desire, even in itself, is not from the Spirit. Frankly, you might realize that your Christianity needs a rebalancing to the right theology. The Spirit that the Bible says, the Spirit is most evident, may not even be on your radar because you're so enamored with miraculous, you forget the truth of Scripture that the Spirit, the spotlight, is trying to shine on your life. And what you might need to say is, Father, help me. Stop looking at the spotlight and look at what the spotlight is supposed to be pointing me towards. Jesus. And it is shocking. How many professing believers who call themselves Christian are more enamored with the Spirit than they are Christ. That's the danger. What people believe about the Spirit and how he works today is a major testifier, actually, of what they believe about salvation. Because the Spirit's work pushes folks, promotes folks, and points to Christ. And for that reason, in many, many, many ways, a study of pneumatology will in, in, in end be a study of Jesus the Son, because that's actually the work of the Spirit. Let's pray together as we close. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we've only just sought to introduce a very broad subject, and in the coming messages, we'll pick apart the points we've introduced this evening. But Lord, even if we've covered a lot of material this evening, our prayer isn't that we didn't leave this room without encouragement. Both encouragement and admonition from Scripture to stay right in wave upon wave of bad theology. Lord, we are embarking now this evening on a very, very important series, I think, in light of what has gone on in so many churches, both local and national and even international, that are so confused about this. Lord, may we add clarity, but may it not be from us. May we look to your word to guide and balance our theology in the correct vein that we may know exactly what your word has to say, not what man has to say about it.